Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton. To get notices of our new Bible examination programs, go to our website, whtt.org, and enter your email address in the subscribe to WHTT box on the right-hand side of the website. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Bible examination, we're continuing in our study of Hebrews. We're in chapter 10. We'll be starting in verse 32. And as we like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Craig, please. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that we can gather together, even uh, across the wires, as it were, to, to study your word together. We thank you uh, for your inspiration. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that illumines our heart as we study together. The prayer you're anointing on Mark as he leads us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. And welcome, Mark. Thank you, Tom. It's good to be back with everyone. Again, with our examination of Hebrews here, where we are contrasting the physical things of the old age and the old covenant to the spiritual things of the new age and the new covenant we have gotten down in chapter 10 to the last paragraph which begins in verse 32 to the end of the chapter at 39 please but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated you endured a great struggle with sufferings partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of an endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Great. Thank you very much, Tom. All right. So this little paragraph at the end of chapter 10, which is kind of an artificial late human addition to the text, gives us a lot of insight into the location and nature of our audience. This is how we know that these were not Palestinian Judeans because they, well, there's actually there's another 
verse, uh, chapter 12, that ties in with this, that says you haven't yet suffered to the point of shedding blood. But here we know that they have uh, endured a struggle after they became believers in Yeshua as Messiah. They endured a hard struggle with sufferings, which involved uh, public shame with insults and persecutions. And they had their property plundered. And then, again, when you tie this together with chapter 12, none of them had died or lost a limb or or been bodily wounded, but they had been humiliated. They had been robbed as a result of their belief in Jesus. So this would exclude all the Christians in Jerusalem because uh, Stephen had been murdered there and there'd been a lot of persecution. They tried to kill the apostles. They'd beaten them there in Jerusalem where they shed blood, I'm sure lots of blood after being beaten. So we believe that this community were uh, Greek-speaking Judeans in a synagogue community somewhere fairly far removed from Palestine. The point of going over all this is to continue to encourage them to endure the trial that is coming on them and to grab hold of the spiritual promises of the kingdom of Christ and to let go of the dying physical kingdom of Judea. But they definitely will be tested. They had been tested before as young believers, and they had come through that test quite well. So he's reminding them of that earlier test and encouraging them to show the same perseverance and confidence now as they had shown at that earlier time. Now also, we get the idea that the kingdom is not about physical property or physical real estate, but is about a better possession, a permanent possession, something that is eternal and spiritual rather than something that is tangible and physical. And so even though real estate is not in view here, we have seen and we will see even more in chapter 11 the contrast between the promises of land given to Abraham and how that relates to the eternal spiritual kingdom of God. Not continuing to be physical real estate, certainly not physical real estate in physical Palestine. There are several historical events that could be alluded to in this paragraph. The persecution of the Christians under Nero took place around A.D. 65. This letter could apply and be sent to Christians in the, in the area of Rome before the year uh, 65. In the year 41, when Claudius was emperor, he imposed certain restrictions on the Judean communities in Rome. There's conflicting evidence that has survived about the nature of this. 
but apparently eight years after imposing these restrictions, he took the more drastic step of expelling all of the Judeans from Rome. At least one Roman historian connects this to Christians, so it may have been internal bickering in the synagogue communities that brought about disorder and violence. The Romans hated disorder. They expected communities like the synagogue community and the trade guilds to police themselves and to make sure that no disorder or riotous behavior occurred. So we don't really know, but we do have the example of Priscilla and Aquila who had to move to Corinth around, well, Paul met them there around the year 50 A.D., they had been living in Rome, but had to leave as a result of uh, one of these edicts of Claudius. There was also a similar riot against the Judean community of Alexandria in Egypt around the year 38. Uh, so that's a possible event uh, that could be being referred to here, although there there was apparently no distinction between Christians and Judeans, as there rarely would have been up until the year 65, when all of the Christians, no matter what their origin, were considered part of the uh, Judean communities in whatever city in which they lived. It is mentioned that our audience did visit those of their number who were imprisoned as a result of these earlier discomforts. And, of course, this is specifically mentioned by our Lord in uh, the 25th chapter of Matthew as he's talking about the impending judgment on Judea there. And he specifically mentions that I was in prison and you came to visit me. This was part of the category of of those who would pass through the judgment successfully. So... Perhaps these readers uh, were part of that select community. Christ also said in the sixth chapter of Luke, Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. And that's about that's what was about to occur to these people that this letter was written to, and they had already endured part of it in years past, but they were going to endure more persecution on account of the Son of Man. The eternal inheritance laid up for them was real in their minds, and they could forego their material possessions without being too upset or or bitter over it. And this demonstrates a great confidence in unseen spiritual things and the unseen spiritual promises that God is associated with salvation and resurrection in his kingdom. And the whole 11th chapter that we're almost to is going to go into some other specific examples of this attitude of confidence in unseen spiritual blessings. 
We can also think of the boldness that Peter and John demonstrated when they were called before the Supreme Council of the Judean Nation back in Acts chapter 4. They spoke to the most powerful men in the country with this boldness that demonstrated a great inner confidence. That's the kind of confidence our writer is encouraging in his audience. That, But they will have to be patient. The day was approaching, but it still could have been three to five years off as this letter is being written. And so they still had to have patience, as so many of the New Testament letters state. And and all of these would be nonsensical passages if they were talking about events thousands of years in the future. But they, they were certainly speaking of events that, that that audience would experience, that they would live through, but they would not be told the day or the hour in which these things would come to an end or come to a conclusion. They had to be patient. And again, this is one of the major themes in so many letters that we find in our New Testaments. To reinforce this encouragement for patience, there is a quote here from the second chapter of Habakkuk. Uh, Verse 3 of chapter 2 and following says, For still the vision awaits its time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, he whose soul is not upright in him shall fail, but the righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous will live by faith. That's an important quote, but it's actually from the Old Testament. And again, if the end that they were waiting for hasn't occurred yet as we speak tonight in the year 2016. Those people waited and waited and waited. It never happened and they died and it hadn't happened. And it's hard to see how our writer could tell them that it will not delay if in fact it did delay for an additional Uh, 2,000 years almost and counting. But there was a short delay, but it was certainly something that would be all wrapped up in the lifetimes of most of them who read this letter originally. The Greek version of Habakkuk comes out in English a little bit differently, and that's, of course, the version that our author and the audience were used to. It says, because the vision is yet for an appointed time and it will appear at length and not in vain. If he is late, wait for him because he will surely come. He will not delay. If he draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him, but my righteous one will live by faith. So the prophet here predicts a deliverer and when he appears, he will vindicate the righteousness of God and put down the oppressor. And again, we see consistently throughout all of the New Testament that the oppressor of God's people 
was the Judean nation, certainly the Judean leadership, with the exception of a righteous remnant who did believe that Jesus was their long-awaited Messiah. The Greek version more obviously is messianic in nature. In other words, it's more obvious in the Greek version of Habakkuk that this passage is speaking of the Messiah. And it's pretty obvious by the context that the parousia of Christ uh, is in view here as far as the coming. This is the parousia. And, of course, uh, it's mistranslated in most of our English Bibles as coming when it has more of a the presence of a of a regal authority who makes his presence known it could be like a formal inspection visit of a high ranking official that's implied there by that word parousia strong's lexicon says that parousia is specifically speaking of christ's coming to visit judgment upon Jerusalem in A.D. 70. But if you just read the King James Bible, you would not know that because they just substitute the word coming for the word parousia. doesn't really convey all of the meaning there. The coming one will come, he will not delay is another way that could be translated. They, the righteous shall live by faith as this closes out is quoted by Paul both in his letter to Romans and in his letter to Galatians. And this also is one of the major reasons that a lot of scholars don't believe that Paul wrote this letter because he, Paul uses a little different twist on this verse than our writer does here. It's, and I'm not going to get into it. It's nuances of meaning in the Greek language that I'm not really qualified to comment on. But there's just a slight different twist to that last phrase in the Habakkuk quote there that would tend to indicate a different author from Paul for this letter. We also have a quote from the Gospel of Mark that says, Whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. And again, I don't think this means that the Christian is supposed to take up a physical weapon and go out and and wage physical warfare and get shot down. I don't think that's what Christ is uh, is speaking of here. But rather, he's, he's almost talking about just laying down one's life with no resistance uh, to the evil that the Judean nation had become at that time. All right, well, that's my ramblings on this paragraph. Uh, what do you all have to say about it? Any comments or questions? Um, I might ask, Mark, in quoting Habakkuk, I don't have, I don't have Habakkuk in, in front of me in Greek or English or anything at this moment, but uh, from the time Habakkuk was written, would not that forecast of Jesus be uh, the forecast of the first coming of Jesus, the original coming to earth, as in the other prophets that talked about the coming of the Messiah? 
Was that not a messianic forecast? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's quite fascinating, Chuck, that none of the prophets distinguish between a first coming of Messiah and a second coming of Messiah. They all speak about the events related to both as one event horizon. And they they rapidly switch between the idea of deliverance and the idea of judgment. I mean, Isaiah, it almost makes me dizzy how quickly he changes from the paragraph on deliverance to the paragraph of destruction and judgment. And Hosea does the same thing. Joel does the same thing. To the prophet looking forward to this, you know, in in the range of uh, 900 to 500 years before, to them it was all one event, the coming of Messiah. And the events that we commonly associate with the second coming, namely uh, judgment and deliverance, well, deliverance through judgment, to the prophets it was all one thing that was, you know, going to happen sometime in their future. And with Habakkuk, the same thing. Now, Habakkuk's being written before the first destruction of Jerusalem in 586, but yet those things are applied by the New Testament writers to what was about to happen in A.D. 70. Anything else, then? If not, we have uh, time. We can read the introduction to chapter 11, which is verses 1 through 3. Says now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders receive witness. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. All right, now we're about to go through a history of God's people and their faith. And we have here a little prologue regarding the nature of faith. I've heard it stated many, many times that this is the definition of faith. I don't believe that's entirely accurate. Faith is not a word in conversational English that's used commonly outside of a church building. It is used occasionally, but I like to substitute the word uh, confidence for the word faith. Uh, I don't want to sound like a televangelist if I get the opportunity to discuss uh, spiritual things with somebody, and so I try to use words that are used in common conversation, not just in church buildings or on religious programming. Faith may involve a little more than confidence, but we're going to see that the context here is confidence in spiritual things as being real. They may not be something you can touch or hear or see, but they are every bit as real as the things that you can see and hear and touch. And so faith, uh, ever since I was a young kid, listen to to preachers say it, it has some kind of a fuzzy meaning that I don't really put my hand on. But if I say we're talking about confidence in spiritual things. Well, I, you know, I can relate to that. I, I can't necessarily tell you everything about it, but I can at least understand what we are 
talking about here instead of just kind of a warm, fuzzy feeling. It is a conviction regarding things which are not seen. My translation is a little is quite different from what we just read. And faith is the foundation of what we hope for. I don't think that's a definition of it. But the hope for believers is the kingdom of God, the temple of God, which is spiritual. And that spiritual temple of believers is built on this foundation of confidence in unseen things. How could you be a building block in the spiritual temple of God if you had no belief that the temple of God could exist as a spiritual, non-physical entity. It would be rather difficult, would it not? Mm-hmm. And again, I mentioned Don Preston's morning recordings, but he, he did an excellent job uh, in the last few weeks as he went through this, uh, demonstrating that nearly all of the modern Protestant churches are talking about a physical coming of Christ in a physical human body to set up a physical kingdom on earth that involves physical warfare against his enemies. And this perhaps helps explain all of the the confusion about, you know, pro-life Christians who have no objection at all to war that ends up killing all kinds of babies and children and innocent people as collateral damage because they don't understand the spiritual nature of the kingdom. They don't have that firm foundation that our writer is speaking of. They must be convicted about things that are not seen. If their hope is a a future physical kingdom, a future physical appearance of Jesus as a human being, how can they picture themselves as the spiritual body of Christ now? How can they picture themselves as the spiritual temple of God on earth now? See, you can't do it. But it's so, so important. It is the foundation of what God intended to do from before the foundation of the earth, to build a spiritual temple in which he could dwell and to have a spiritual people that he could possess. And so with that very important initial statement that's not merely a definition, he's going to go on to say that the men and women of old, in the old age, in other words, established their record by this confidence in unseen things. This is how we understand the universe came into being by one word from God. The physical universe has not come about from other physical things. And this gets into origins, you know, the Big Bang Theory and all that. You know, the all of a sudden, one day, something came from nothing. <laughs> well, our writer says that's not true. 
but there is no there is no way to explain the existence or origin of our physical universe without this foundation of faith of absolute confidence in the reality of unseen spiritual things which of course includes god himself all right any any thoughts or comments uh, on this i just want to say that was a great statement <laughs> yeah i take no credit for any of it but uh, i i think it's so important because it it really sums up all that we are fighting for is to get people to become part of the spiritual kingdom of god and to renounce the old things which were carnal uh, in nature and which all came to a very bad end. So we might come back and say a few more comments about this uh, next time before we launch into all of the uh, history here of these heroes of faith that we find in our Old Testaments. Wow, thanks so much, Mark. Once again, a really great lesson. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcast. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.